inside your bulletin there, and you have the entire text of the book of Titus, which is where we're going to be for the most part this morning. And then on the back, uh, you have the outline, the sermon outline, and then the conclusion, and uh, that's just to aid you in following along with the sermon. So, with that... We'll get into the book of Titus. Like the light of creation shining forth out of darkness when God said, let there be light, something significant happened. Something that was previously hidden has been revealed. The veil has been removed. The person identified. Jesus, the Christ. God's plan for eternal life for His people had burst upon the scene and revealed God to humanity. He did a seeming, he, he, he did unexpected miracles and works and He died an unexpected death. Unexpected by humanity, but planned by God. Then another amazing thing happened. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Unexpected by humanity. Unexpected by the spiritual forces of evil, but planned by God. God's plan to save his people was fully revealed and nothing would be the same, especially for God's elect who, by his grace, chose to follow the resurrected Savior, especially for a man named Paul. You see, Paul was a religious zealot and he had uh, we find in the book of Acts in uh, chapter nine, we find that he had authority from the chief priests and the elders to go and to beat Christians and to throw them in jail. A fine, upstanding young man, right? To beat people up and throw them in jail for their religious beliefs. But he had authority to do that. And I'll just read to you uh, in uh, Acts chapter nine. About this, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who was Paul persecuting? And it has an Aramaic pronunciation of his name, Saul. Don't let that be a distraction to you. But he was beating the people of the church. But what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies very closely with his people. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? The God he thought he served He did not recognize. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so Saul rose, and he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see anything. And so they led him by hand into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he didn't eat anything or drink anything. He's fasting. And then verse 10 tells us, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise 
and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, he's kind of like he raised it, Lord, uh, don't know if you know this, but I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord kicked Paul off his donkey and saved him for a purpose. To carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Once God revealed Jesus to Paul, he was never the same. Paul now served Jesus Christ. He had a cause. What's your cause today? What is your cause? What is the point of your life? As we begin our look at the book of Titus, I want to convince you that you need to live your life for the cause of the gospel. Under the guidance of your God-given authorities, by guarding the gospel and growing together in godliness with good works as you await glorification to eternal life. Now, if you're having trouble remembering that, don't worry, it's on the back at the bottom of the outline. Okay, That's what I'm trying to convince you of this morning from our text in Titus. Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that and read it together. Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul is writing here to Titus concerning how God's elect should live godly lives of good works in this present world as they live in hope of eternal life. In Christ the Savior. So the theme of the book of Titus is truth that transforms. Truth that transforms. Training God's people for godliness and good works in the midst of an ungodly culture. Training God's people for godliness and good works in an ungodly culture. First, we see Paul's obligation and his authority in verse 1. His obligation and authority. Look at verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God, that's his obligation, because he was called to serve, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is his authority. He received authority as an apostle from Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes with authority to Titus and the church in Crete, where this letter would be read. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, Paul writes with authority to Titus. He sends a greeting of peace and grace to Titus. And he, he considers Titus his legitimate son. It's when it says true son, that word true, it means legitimate. His legitimate son. And his legitimate son shares his common faith. He shares the same God that he serves. And he shares the Savior who authorizes Paul to give direction to Titus. Titus lived his life of service to God. Under apostolic authority, with delegated authority over the churches of Crete. I mean, you get that. So, so Paul served God as an apostle with authority. Titus lived his life of service under apostolic authority, with delegated authority over the churches of Crete. And we see his delegated authority brought out in chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 2, verse 15, Chapter 3, verse 8. But what about today? We no longer have apostles or apostolic delegates like Titus. Uh, Now, if you have someone that calls themselves an apostle, beware. Okay, I remember, I don't know, probably 15 years ago now, I hadn't been here at the church long, I got a call from an apostle. At least that's how he identified himself. I'm Apostle Pete from so-and-so and so-and-so. Somebody claims to be an apostle, beware. The apostles have passed, and unlike Jesus Christ, they have not been resurrected yet. So, what do we do? Apostles and their delegates were used to jumpstart the churches. After that, the authority lies in the local congregations and their elders. So, in our day... A church has elders or pastors, same word, who lead. Elders who lead, deacons who serve, and members who govern through church membership. Okay, Elders who lead, deacons who serve, and members who govern through church membership. Just to peek ahead a little bit in the book of Titus, uh, we see in chapter 1, verse 7, that... Elders are to live lives of service to God under the appointed authority of the congregation to lead a local church. They're called overseers in verse 7. Then members, if you look to chapter 3, verse 1, or excuse me, not 3. Members are to lead lives of service to God under the authority of their elders. And in chapter 3, verse 1, their secular rulers and authorities. And they have authority to teach one another. We see that in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where the elderly women are to teach the younger women. So they have the authority to teach one another and to church discipline one another. If you look over to chapter 3, verse 10, if somebody is divisive and causing problems in the church after rebuking them two or three times, have nothing more to do with them. You need to put them out of the church. And we'll learn more about these things in messages to come, but I I hope you can see that you need to live your life under the guidance of your God-given authorities. Paul sent Titus, told him to appoint elders, and the elders were to lead and then train up other elders, getting that cycle started. Okay, And so the elders are there to be an example 
to the believers and to teach and rebuke. And we'll get into all those things, Lord willing, as we continue in the book of Titus. But they are one of the things they are to be is to be examples. And I think Paul is setting himself as an example to us. And he reveals to us his cause for which he serves the Lord. Look at uh, verse one again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of. okay, for the sake of. And then we have two things directly and a third thing indirectly for the sake of. The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And these things are in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Here we find God's cause or Paul's cause. His service to God is rendered for the sake of God's elect for the church. There is a faith to be kept and a truth that needs to be lived out. When I say the truth and the truth needs to be lived out, it, it's truth that accords with godliness. OK, so it has something to do with the way we live our lives. This truth does. I believe what Paul is referring to is what we would term in our day doctrine and practice or faith and practice. Put another way, there's two ways for a person to deny Christ. One is to to depart from orthodox teaching. And we see an emphasis on sound doctrine in chapter 1, verse 9, in in reference to a qualified elder. Titus 1, 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's the faith of God's elect, which refers to doctrine, the doctrines of the faith. So Paul serves God's elect by making sure sound doctrine is taught and maintained. How firm are you in the doctrines of the Christian faith? I recommend that ESV study Bible because it has a tremendous section on doctrines in the back of it. Uh, The book entitled, What is the Gospel? Another helpful resource for you to know what the gospel is. Be able to share it better. Our library has many books that can help you, but maybe you just need help in how to read your Bible. Would you let me or Pastor Tad know? I'd like to be able to read my Bible better. Or, as I sometimes say with my Appalachian dialect, I'd like to read my Bible more better. I want to get better and better at it. Listen, you can text us, you can call us. There's an email, I think, on the front of the bulletin, church at faithrgv.org. Email us, say, my name is so-and-so, and and I want to read my Bible better, and we'll help you. Okay, we'll get you with someone, or we'll get with you personally, and try to help you learn to read your Bible better, because it's one of the best ways. You can understand your Bible. Uh, We were looking at that in Sunday school. I encourage you to come to Sunday school time, where we learn about the Bible Okay, discipleship can be as simple as getting together with another Christian and reading your Bible together. We'd love to help you with that. You need to know what you believe because we don't want to deny orthodox doctrines of the faith. But the second way for a person to deny that they are truly a Christian is by living a sinful, unrepentant life. And I think this is what he's talking about when he says 
the knowledge of the truth. So we have the faith of God's elect being doctrine and their knowledge of the truth being their practice, which accords with godliness. Look at Titus 1.16, the very first part. Paul says that there are some there in Crete, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Genuine faith and correct doctrine has implications on how we live. In other words, what you believe about God impacts the way you live your life. Your doctrine impacts your practice, even with things not directly addressed in the Bible. For instance, the Bible does not speak directly about social media platforms, but the Bible contains principles that guide us as to whether we should engage on certain social media platforms and how we are to engage on other on social media platforms. See, there is a knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. And we see an emphasis on the practice of our faith in Titus chapter two, verse one. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In Titus 2, 5, he's instructing the older women to teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. You, you ever been at your workplace and somebody comes to you and you say, hey, that's that's uh, that's Jim. He says he's a Christian, but. And then they tell you how awful he acts or the different things that he's done, sinful things. They deny him by their works. And they, by doing that, the word of God is reviled. Look at Titus 2, verse 10. Bond servants, which we would relate, not directly, but by principle, as to employees are to live godly lives and not pilfer from their employers, showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, like decorations on a Christmas tree, the way we live our lives should give beauty to our beliefs. Godliness beautifies sound doctrine. So Paul serves God's elect by making sure their knowledge of the truth leads to lives of godliness. And we need help with that. Our discipleship, our growth in Christ, our sanctification is meant to be a group project led by elders or pastors. And so that requires you to submit to a group of people and a group of leaders. And that is done through church membership. And so if you don't have a church, I encourage you. Join a church. Put yourself under a group of people that will be responsible to help you grow in your holiness. Now, looking back, uh, look, or excuse me, looking on to verse two, all of this faith and practice reveals our hope of eternal life. In the Bible, hope is not a synonym for wish. For instance, some here today may say, I hope the Cowboys win this week. That's not the hope of the Bible. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation. It's like the end of this sermon. It's sure to come. You just don't know when. It's okay to laugh. (laughs) It's a confident expectation. As a Christian who has repented of your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, you will be resurrected to eternal life. You just don't know when. So what is your cause? We see Paul's cause here, but 
I'm arguing that you need to live your life for the cause of the gospel under the guidance of God-given authorities as Paul to Christ and as Titus served God in under the authority of Paul. And then he appointed elders who were to oversee the congregations. You are to live your life for the cause of the gospel under the guidance of your God-given authorities. And we do that by guarding the gospel and growing together in godliness with good works as we await our glorification to eternal life. Paul's cause was the faith and practice of God's people who hope in God's gospel. Now, let's look at Paul's gospel message. Look at verses two and three. It says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. We see three main things here. We see that the the gospel was promised by a trustworthy God. The gospel was revealed by God. And then the gospel was entrusted to Paul by the command of God, our Savior. Let's look at those individually. The gospel was promised by a trustworthy God. He is a God who never lies. Now, Paul's setting us up here because the Cretan society was known for lying. In fact, they were proud of deception. In ancient times, if somebody called you a Corinthian, that was the same as calling you a sinner. If someone called you a Cretan, that meant you were a liar. Okay, so that's how bad it was. They were proud of it in their society. And so Paul's kind of setting us up here for how he's going to address the Christian society later on. But he is saying that this hope of eternal life, this confident expectation is in a promise that God, who never lies, made. He is trustworthy. You can count on it. And this gospel was revealed by God. And I love how God, God is the, the, he is the gospel. He, he, he brings it. He gives it. He saves. It's a work of God to save someone. This gospel was revealed by God according to God's eternal plan. Verse two tells us it was before the ages began that this promise was made. So it was according to his eternal plan. It was according to God's timing. Chapter three, at the proper time. You understand God's never early and never late. Always on time. Right. And, and if and if I were just to throw in one thing about the culture of the valley, God's always on time. It's one of the first things they told me about the so, uh, one, of, one of the fellows came up to me and he says, Did anybody explain to you manana yet? I said, no. So then he tells me, right? We, we just tend to be late here in the valley. Well, God's never late. Praise the Lord. He's always on time at the proper time. So he planned it and he timed it. And he did it all according to his word. It says at the proper time, verse 3, and at the proper time manifested in his word. So according to his word, he did this and then he revealed it according to God's means. His means is through preaching. When you say that this afternoon you're going to go to Lowe's to shop for something, I'm going to go to Lowe's through shopping. What's the means of going to Lowe's? Well, you could have the means of Uber or your own car 
Or maybe somebody's going to pick you up and take you. Or if you're adventurous, you can walk. Those are the means, okay? So God determines that He's going to save people. Well, he, the means by which He does that is through the preaching of the gospel. Christ chose Paul to preach the gospel message of eternal life through Christ. Preaching is God's means for calling His elect to salvation. Now, why do I say this promised hope of eternal life is the gospel? Well, we have two things that key us in to another passage in Titus. In verse 2 there, you see the phrase hope of eternal life. I think it's highlighted in yellow on your sheet. That phrase is also found at the end of chapter 3, verse 7. The hope of eternal life. The second key is found in chapter 1, verse 3, where the word says manifested. It has an English synonym, which means which is appeared. So manifested and appeared. They have the same Greek root word. Okay, And so those two words kind of surround Titus chapter three, verses four through seven. And that's where we find the gospel explained. Look at verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, there's that word that ties us in. To manifest it in the first verse. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, you're not saved by your works. You're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn your salvation. And so, therefore, God determines to save you. And he does that by regenerating you by his Holy Spirit. Now, that's what he does. How does that work from our perspective? We hear the gospel And we believe the gospel and we repent of our sins and we follow the Savior. And perhaps this morning, as you've been reading this passage and as you have listened to this message, perhaps God has revealed to you that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. And I would urge you there right now in your seat to repent of your sins and ask God to save you because of what Christ did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins. Place your hope in him. Won't you repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ, the Savior, for your salvation? If you have questions about that, please talk to me or Pastor Tad or someone after the service. We'd like you to help you to understand the gospel. So we see that the gospel was promised by a trustworthy God. It was revealed by God. And then we see that the gospel was entrusted to Paul by the command of God, our Savior. Notice that word, our. Paul now brings the church in. You see, the gospel, the faith of God's elect, has been entrusted to Paul, who then entrusted it to Timothy and to Titus, and who who then entrusted it to elders in the churches, who then entrusted it to the next generation, and on and on. Jesus is not just Paul's Savior, He is our Savior as well. 
Beloved, we have a life-giving gospel message that we need to share with the world. God's means of getting the gospel to others is through the declaration of the gospel. And we've been talking about your cause this morning. What could be more important than being used of God to turn somebody from eternal damnation to eternal life? That's pretty important. That's a pretty important thing. That's a pretty important cause. And perhaps this morning you're realizing your priorities have been lopsided, out of kilter. You've not been living your life for the cause of the gospel. Who are you sharing it with? Is there somebody you're praying for that you can share it with? We've used that phrase, who's your one? Pick somebody. Pray for them daily. Ask God for opportunities to share the gospel with them. And share it. The proclaiming of God's message of salvation, the gospel... That's his means of saving people. And he can use you to do it. Now, the great thing is, he's the one that does the work, right? So he can take your fumbling, bumbling, stumbling attempt to share the gospel and do great things. Okay? So don't think that you're a failure when you, as best you can, share the gospel with somebody. You'll get better at it as you go. But don't, don't let that stop you. God, God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Who's your one? You see, God saved Paul. And he was never the same. His purpose changed. He had a cause. Why are you here? What are you living for? Do you have a cause? If you're a Christian, you do. It's the gospel. You have a responsibility to submit yourself in church membership to a group of uh, believers under the leadership of qualified elders. You have a responsibility to look after one another's faith and godliness, the doctrine and the practice. You have a responsibility to look after one another's faith and godliness with good works. Good works is Scattered. I would encourage you to take that sheet and highlight the word good works and works and just see how much it's emphasized in there. But notice it's, we're not saved by our good works, right? Because we read that this morning. Not by works which we have done, but our salvation results in good works. You have a life-giving message to share that God has chosen to proclaim through your mouth. He has placed you in a position where you can be a little, a little Adam tending to the Garden of Eden. And those people who walk into your sphere of influence, you can bless somehow, some way with good works. Now, have some. So, so in general, you have a responsibility to submit yourself for all of us in church membership to a group of believers with qualified elders. You have a responsibility to look after not just your own faith, but others. The faith, you have to need to understand the doctrines of God and others' godliness and your godliness with good works. And you have a responsibility to share a message. But then let me talk to some groups amongst us. First of all, let me talk to the single folks here. Paul recommended singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because you can have a singular focus on serving God. 
You're undistracted by your spouse. You can dedicate yourself wholly to focusing on serving God. And I say that because in, sometimes, sometimes in our society, more times even in our church, we, you, you get the feeling that you're not complete until you're married. You're not made whole by being married. You're complete in Christ. You have all that you need. Use your singleness to focus on serving God. Serve God by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Disciple someone. Check up on your fellow church members. Read that book, How Can I Serve My Church? Now, let me say that a desire to marry is not sinful. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I desire that you would all be single. Right? So there's a desire, but that doesn't mean that if you... If you get married, it's sinful. It's, it's, it's like when back when the pandemic was heavy and everything. I told you at one point, I said, I wish all of you would get the vaccination, but it's okay if you decide not to, right? So there, there's, there's, there's a preference that I have. There's a preference that Paul had because he, he, sees, he sees the advantage of being singularly focused on serving God without the distraction of a spouse. But he also understands it's not sinful to be married either. So, if you have a desire to be married, look for someone who's going to help you serve the Lord. And uh, I have some C's that I share that help you remember. Your spouse or potential spouse should be a Christian who is growing in Christ-likeness and is committed to a local church. And then if you have common denominational beliefs, that's a bonus but not a requirement. Okay? So... Your, your potential spouse should be a Christian who is growing in Christ's likeness and is committed to a local church. So that's for the single folks. For husbands, your primary area of discipleship is your family. Lead them. Get them to church every week. Read with them. Pray with them. Talk, talk with them as you go on the way. That's the Deuteronomy 6. As you live your life... I was talking with someone just uh, this past week. One of, one of the best discipleship tools you have, and, I, and I, look, I love family devotions, but one of the best things that you can do for your children is to live for Christ. If they see you living for Christ, they'll get it. Right? They'll get it. If church and Christ, others, if those are your focus and they get their care from you, that's one of the greatest discipleship tools that you can have. So, make sure they're in church. Help them read their Bible. Pray with them. But that does not mean you're released from your responsibility for your fellow church members. Have you checked on a fellow church member recently? Who can you meet with for discipleship? Who are you investing in to help grow in the grace and knowledge of God? That's the husbands. Let me talk to the children and the teens. You too. Have a gospel cause. Support your parents. Submit to the authority of your parents in the home. If you have siblings, choose not to fight with them. You know what irritates them. And they know what irritates you. Be peacemakers in your home. Help your parents. Get ready for church each week. Use the restrooms before the service so you're not a distraction getting up and going out to the bathroom during the service. Invest time focused on your discipleship. Excuse me. Invest time focused on discipleship with your friends. When we get with our friends, 
and our fellow Christians here at church, it's very easy to just talk about things that eternally don't have a lot of weight. And it's okay, but we, we want to know how they're doing spiritually, right? So invest time with your friends and your fellow Christians here at church. And as you plan for your future, think about a career path that will help you have time and resources to serve God with your life. Perhaps God would want you to be a pastor, maybe even you, husband. But not everybody can be a pastor. If we're all pastors, who's going to listen, right? Who's going to follow the leading? So it's okay to have a secular job, but but be thinking... Is this job going to consume too much of my time, too much of my resources so that I'm not investing in others? Think about these things as you plan your life. Now, wives, your primary area of discipleship is your family. Submit to your husband's leadership of your home. Help your family get ready for church every week. Read with your children if God has blessed you with them. Pray with them. But you're not released from responsibility for your fellow church members. Have you checked on a fellow church member recently? Who can you meet for discipleship? You said, Pastor, I got got kids. It's tough. I know it's tough. But a call, a coffee, discipleship takes time. Boy, don't I wish it didn't. It just does. And so we're responsible to do it. We're responsible to others. So carve out some time in your schedule. It's about those priorities. What's your cause? Live for your cause. You need to live your life for the cause of the gospel under the guidance of your God-given authorities by guarding the gospel and growing together in godliness with good works as you await glorification to eternal life. What's your cause this morning, Christian? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you For Jesus Christ, his appearance in this world, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, the dawning of a new age in this world. As other parts of the book of Titus say, the appearance of your grace came, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live sober and upright lives, self-controlled. Oh, Father, Jesus changes everything. Father, I pray if there are some here who do not know you as Savior, will you save them today? Will you open their eyes to the gospel truth? And I pray that they will repent of their sins and call out to you and ask you to save them. And Father, for the rest of us here this morning, I know in my own life, as I prepared this message and read over it, even this morning, just things coming to mind, areas where I have not prioritized my purpose, living for the gospel by guarding doctrinal truth and helping others to walk in the truth that leads to godliness. Oh, Father, help us to remember our purpose As we go out into this distracting world that, quite frankly, doesn't know you, doesn't care about you, and in reality just hates you. May we be light and salt to them as we live for your purpose. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.